Hey everybody, Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Today on the show, we've got Mike Webb. He's the SVP and GM of the Americas for a great company called SimilarWeb. They do a bunch of cool stuff just around helping you understand how your company or website is performing relative to the market, relative to competitors. Really important, critical information that you probably need, particularly in an economic environment such as the one that we're in. So it's a great conversation. Before we get there, we're going to listen to a word from our sponsors, and then we're going to hear my interview with Mike Sadler. I hope you enjoy it. This episode of the Sales Hacker Podcast is brought to you by Outreach. Outreach is the first and only engagement and intelligence platform built by revenue innovators for revenue innovators. Outreach allows you to commit to accurate sales forecasting, replace manual process with real-time guidance, and unlock actionable customer intelligence that guides you and your team to win more often. Traditional tools don't work in a hybrid sales world. Find out why. Outreach is the right solution at click.outreach.io forward slash 30 MPC. That is click.outreach.io forward slash 30 MPC. This episode of the Sales Hacker Podcast is sponsored by Pavilion. Pavilion is the key to getting more out of your career. Our private membership connects you with a network of thousands of like-minded peers and resources where you can tap into dozens of classes and training through Pavilion University. Make sure you take advantage of the Pavilion for Teams corporate membership and enroll your entire go-to-market team in one of our industry-leading schools and courses, including Marketing School, Sales School, Sales Development School, and Revenue Operations School. Unlock your professional potential and your team's professional potential with a Pavilion membership. Get started today at joinpavilion.com. Once again, that's joinpavilion.com. This episode of the Sales Hacker Podcast is brought to you by Vericent. High-performing revenue organizations have a plan for growth. Get yours with Vericent. Set smarter goals and design territories to maximize your revenue potential. Create incentives that motivate the behaviors needed to achieve your goals. Use AI-driven insights to make better decisions and outdo previous performance. Learn how Vericent can help you create a predictable growth engine at vericent.com forward slash sales hacker. Again, that is vericent.com forward slash sales hacker. Hey everybody, it's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Today on the show, we've got Mike Sadler. Mike's the SVP and GM Americas at SimilarWeb and is responsible for leading and growing the revenue organization for North America and Latin America. Prior to SimilarWeb, Mike held multiple go-to-market leadership positions at Everbridge and Gomez, Inc., now doing business as Dynatrace. During their growth phases from 10 million in ARR startups to an IPO and successful acquisition, respectively, Mike attended Colgate University in New York, where he graduated cum laude with a bachelor's degree in sociology. He's been a Pavilion member since it was still called Revenue Collective back in 2019. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, I much appreciate it. It's a privilege to be here. We're excited to have you. So I gave an overview of your responsibilities, but we do like to give you an opportunity to pitch your business. So what is SimilarWeb? Tell us about the company. What do you all do? Sure. The vision of SimilarWeb is to be the digital measure of the internet, which it can mean a lot of different things, but if we break it down into what it means for our customers, our primary business or our historical business has really been focused on helping digital marketers and consumer insights teams to really understand what's happening outside of the black box they can see. So if you think about most companies these days use a Google Analytics or an Adobe Analytics to understand where their traffic's coming from, how long people are standing on the site, what their bounce rates are. But looking at that in a, a competitive lens is very difficult, right? Understanding how that compares relative to competitors or, or what best practices they're using. Um, we really help shine a light on that, right? So if you're, I'll give you a quick example, if you think about during the pandemic of video conferencing service, they may look at their statistics, see their traffic's growing 30% year over year and think they're doing great. 
But if they looked at their competitive set and saw that all their competitors are growing at 200 or 300% a year, they're actually losing market share. And we help them start to see that, benchmark that, and then effectively understand the best practices that could help them win an unfair share of their market. That sounds incredibly valuable. How, how big is the company? Is it a public company? Tell me more about your IPO and how large the organization is and then where you are. Your revenue range. You don't have to give anything confidential, but it's probably yeah. also publicly available. So it is publicly available. So the <laughs> revenue range is about 150 to 200 million, closing in on 200 million. I've actually only been at the company for four months. They IPO'd last year. It's about 1,200 employees and growing strong, growing about 50% year over year. Wow, that's amazing. Let's dive into your background a little bit. How did you get to this point? What, how did you originally get into sales? What was your, you know, I mentioned that in the bio that you went to Colgate and you've worked at a bunch of great companies, but walk us through your career journey over, you know, the last couple decades. Yeah, it was a, a little bit by accident getting into sales, to be, to be honest. It's a bit of a, a funny story. So I, I was always interested in human behavior and psychology. I ended up taking a marketing role coming out of school and really enjoyed it for the first sort of two and a half years. I think I got a 35% raise my first year, a 25% and a 10% raise the second year, and, and just sort of started doing the math and figured, hey, you know what? Pretty pretty soon I'll be in, in good shape. And then my third year uh, was a little bit of an eye-opening experience when I got a, a 4% raise, went in to talk to my my VP who'd just given me a great report and, and said, hey, I, I don't understand what I did wrong. And he said, I don't know what you mean. That's the biggest raise in the group. And, and then I sort of quickly realized that those first couple of years was market catch-ups, market adjustments, because they'd underpaid me uh, and were really trying to avoid me just jumping ship. So at that point in my career, I was running a lot of the trade shows, going on a lot of sales calls and, and had some experience. And there was a couple of sales leaders that had been trying to convince me to go to the dark side, as they called it, for a couple of years and figured, you know what, if, I, if I'm going to find out I can't sell, the time to do it is when I don't have kids and don't have mortgages. So jump ship. And I think I made two and a half times the amount of money made that that year was the, the rookie of the year. The next year was a, it is inside sales. So it was the top performing percent of quota. So got the rep of the year award, um, quickly moved into a, a team lead role. My my manager quit. And then before I knew it, sort of two and a half years in, I was, I was leading a sales team. So it was sort of a uh, same situation there, right? I figured if I wanted to learn that I was terrible at managing people, that I didn't want to do that when I had a bunch of mortgages and and uh, kids running around either. So to some degree by accident, but was very fortunate to work for some good companies and some good leaders. What do you think the biggest you know mistake people make when they move to from an individual contributor or account executive role into sales leadership? What do you think made you successful and what do you see other people do when they when they jam themselves up that makes them unsuccessful? What made me successful being having having a, some really good mentors and, and leaders to, to go to and being sort of maniacal about learning from my mistakes and not repeating them. I'm a big fan of the, the Albert Einstein quote around doing the same thing multiple times, expecting different results is the definition of insanity. So really tried to learn from that. I think the, the biggest mistake I've seen people make, and, I, and I'm definitely guilty of doing this when I first moved into the team lead role was just trying to be a super rep, right? Basically just trying to do everything for your your team instead of helping them and enabling them, which which works okay if you've got a small team, right? You effectively as a leader turn your team into a bunch of BDRs and you do all the all the actual work, but that very quickly doesn't scale and it doesn't help your people progress. So that's probably the biggest thing that I I see people do is trying to take on too much and not allow their team to grow under them. You're running a, a group of 110 people. 
How does the role change at scale? You're helping your similar web get past 200 million. You're on the approach to 200 million. How is that different from some of the earlier stage experiences you might have had where you were working at companies that were doing maybe 10 million? Like what changes as it gets big? I think you have to find ways to scale your coaching, right? To me, the first line manager role where the people that are actually working with the team is one of the hardest, but also I think the most the most important and can be the most rewarding. One of the things that I try to do is still stay as involved as I can in that, and make sure I'm still getting on customer calls. But it is it is a little bit different, right? You have you have to almost take the train the trainer approach and make sure you've got really good first line leaders that are capable of of taking those those principles, those concepts, those processes you have, and coaching and training those those teams. So oftentimes, if you're in a smaller company, right, you got seven, eight, ten, twelve direct reports. You can spend a lot of time with them individually coaching. As you get a, a second or third level of leadership in there you just get further and further removed. So you have to find ways to continue to, to effectively get that message down and, and work on that. And it can, be, it can be tricky for sure. How do you do it? What are your strategies? What are your tactics? Is it hiring? Is it like a training methodology? How do you think about setting up your, your framework so that you're able to do that? I look for leaders that really like to roll up their sleeves and, and get involved. Generally, I'm a big believer that all sales comes back to early in the process, discovery and qualification. So I look for people that are really strong there because that's where I find sales teams need the most help and coaching. So I, I do look at it from a, a people and hiring perspective, trying to make sure we have the right the right people on the ship. Um, but then I also like to do a lot of trainings, right? So one of the first things I've done in in my couple months here is is gone around to the different teams and we've done some some training on discovery and qualification and, and setting up meetings to make sure that. A meeting is not a meeting for meeting's sake, right? And you actually are progressing something either in or out of the funnel when you do those meetings. So I still like to get down and, and meet with the team and, and share some of, of my experiences, some of the things I've done well, the things I've not done so well to try to help them. And I find, I find that helps, right? If you, if you can set an example there, then I think that, that gets picked up by your, your leaders too, right? They start to continue that trend. Do you have a hiring profile that, that you look for? You know, is it pretty standard in terms of like the types of people that you think will make great reps or great managers? Any great interview questions? I ask because I just think hiring, particularly in sales, is probabilistic. And sometimes people interview really well. But I almost feel like sometimes interviewing really well isn't quite the same thing as being great at discovery or great at closing. So just wondering how you think about the hiring profile and the hiring process and building the team. Yeah, I think that's fairly insightful. I've definitely I've hired some great people and I've hired some some people that probably weren't the right fit. It seems like the one thing every salesperson can sell is them is themselves, right? Even if they can't sell sell your product. So I think you have to be really clever. I wish I had a better substitute for sort of teaching than than just time on on my side. But what I've really tried to do is come up with a set of questions I use consistently that are maybe a little bit tricky, right? And I, I hesitate a little bit to share some of those questions. But to be honest, if people are listening to this, then they're probably doing the right level of preparation. Yeah, exactly. To be fine <laughs> hiring. There's a couple that I can I can share. And then I'll, I'll give a shout out to, I think, a really strong sales leader also in the Boston area, Josh Allen, who I think you know, who shared with me a framework a couple of years ago that I plagiarized and, and used today, which is is really breaking down a set of hiring criteria in four, into four areas. Your knowledge, your skills, your characteristics, and your experience. So knowledge being things like industry knowledge or awareness of the market. Skills being the, the skills that are specific to the role. Experience being sort of track record of success. The things, similar size company, similar size deal size. 
And then characteristics being those more intangibles, the grit, the curiosity, the intelligence that people look for. So really try to work with my leaders to map out what what works along those four quadrants and and find the ones that are nice to have and non-negotiables. And then we try to design the interview questions based off of that. If I were to look at some of my favorite interview questions sort of very tactically, one of the first things I like to do in an interview is ask a compound question right off the bat. So I'll actually ask something that is three questions all in one, right? Or I'll set set an agenda for the interview where I tell them three things I'd like them to go through. And I'll just look to see whether they take notes, whether they paraphrase it and re- repeat back, and then whether they can actually effectively take that that question, break it into the, the component parts and answer them succinctly and, and effectively, or whether they sort of just ramble on through the first question forget the next two, and then either ask me to repeat the question or just don't remember it at all. So that's usually a good indication. Like what's the, what's the question? Give us an example. So I, so I might just say something and say, hey, Sam, we've got, we've got 45 minutes today. Certainly, I want to make sure I leave some time to ask you questions, but would love to hear a little bit about your background, right? How you got to where you are today. Um, would love to hear a little bit about your approach to selling, right? What you consider the key pillars of what's made you successful, and a bit about what you're looking for, right? What are the key things that you want to make sure exist in a company so that you know you can really excel and and invest time here? And so it's sort of three questions rolled into one. And I like to see whether the person can actually parse that into those sections and, and answer them. I love that. Because to your point, somebody, I bet a bunch of people just start talking and maybe they never stop. <laughs> and, and the good people are like, all right, let me repeat this back to you. Let me take some notes and then I'll tackle each of them in turn. Yeah. Exactly. So the direct thing I get out of that is the actual answers to the questions, which I do care a lot about. But the indirect thing is whether they can actively listen and and sort of break down a bigger problem into smaller parts and and solve it. It's sort of one of those things people know, right? There's infinite Google resources on what the interview questions people are likely to have come up or or have. So they're prepared for those. So you have to try to find some of the the tricky ways to, to get to what you really are looking for. Another one I ask, this is this is one of my favorites. I do sort of quick fire at the end where I'll ask people on a scale of one to 10, where would you rate your sales skill? And really what I'm looking for there is two things. One, the person not to answer 10, right? Because if they think they're a 10 already, how much help am I going to be to them? And two, right? Nobody's ever a perfect salesperson. There's always things we can improve on. So I like to understand where they rate themselves. But then the, the second part of that question is, okay, great. If you said you're a seven, what are the top two or three things you need to work on to get to an eight or a nine? Because it gives me a good indication of how self-aware they are and how much they're looking for coaching or, or sort of have an understanding of where they need coaching to be successful. Because to me, coachability is a really important component of the types of people I like to have on teams. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you uh, to change the subject slightly. Maybe we're in a recession. Maybe we're not. Certainly indicators are that we're going to be, we are in a very, very different economic environment than we were six months ago or 12 months ago. How are you thinking about working with your teams to respond to this environment? What's your perspective on it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We actually did a training a few weeks ago on selling in, in a bit of a tightened or down economy with the group. I, I generally, um, I remember reading an article a while back that sort of the best salespeople are recession proof. And I, I think I believe that. Generally, if you think about companies and companies that have good product market and go-to-market fit, they're offering is going to be aligned to one of the three things you can sell to, right? Improving revenue, reducing costs, reducing risk. And where I think that the, the people that can succeed in tough economic times, I think what they're, they tend to be good at is pivoting a message 
to really align well to one of those components, right? People are still trying to improve revenue, still people are still trying to reduce cost. And when everything's go and everything's green and the stock market's crazy, I think spaghetti selling can actually work, right? And un- unfortunately, you get into situations where bad behavior is rewarded. If someone's doing proper discovery and really trying to understand how can I help my customer achieve a better business outcome to reduce costs to drive revenue, they're still going to want to do that in a recession. So a lot of the focus becomes, I guess, laser focus becomes around making sure that we understand why now, what's the impact of doing nothing, all that stuff that is truly sales 101, but so few sales reps actually get to, right? Actually have the discipline to drill down to and be able to have the response when a, when a customer comes back and says, we've decided to hold off for six months, they can come back and say, Sam, I appreciate the response. Just help me understand, right? We had had this conversation around this cost and this cost. How, how are you going to live with that for another six months? It may seem oversimplified, but I, I really believe that if you, if you can get to that point of understanding truly what the cost of the problem is for a customer, that recession or no recession, you still got a fighting chance of winning business. Yeah, you're right. And I think so many reps here, hey, we've decided to hold off for a few months and they read the newspapers too and they say, okay. And then they... It's a non-conducive buy cycle, right? I think is the psychological term. If it's what you would do with your own money, then it's acceptable for prospects to do. And it's a hard thing to overcome. Do you think selling has changed over the last 20 years? We've got so many new tools. We've got so many new platforms. It feels like getting people's attention is hard. Do you feel like selling as a skill, as a craft is different or still the same stuff that you need to do, still need to do proper discovery? I I think certainly tactics, tactics change. I don't think there's ever going to be a point where good selling gets away from discovery. The bigger fundamental shift was probably a lip a little bit longer ago, right? With with the advent of the internet and B2B websites where people, right, there, there was a point in time, I was having a conversation with an SDR the other day about this. So I realized there was a point in time where you couldn't just go on the internet and find out 80% of everything you need to know. You had to call a salesperson to, to find out information about a product. I think that obviously was a, a titanic shift in, in selling. But my entire selling career, B2B websites, I've always been in B2B SaaS. They, they've existed. There's been product information there. Um, so I, I definitely think there's productivity tools, there's technologies out there that have made things um, or provided the possibility to make it more efficient. But to me, the core fundamentals are still around discovery and qualification. And I've, I haven't found a software that replaces good discovery and good qualification at this point. That makes sense. You've mentioned before that you think product knowledge, product knowledge is chronically misused by salespeople to their detriment. Tell us what you mean by that. What I mean by that is I think product knowledge is absolutely critical, but I think it's critical for people to be able to identify opportunities for where their products and services can have value for customers, where I think it's misused by sales reps is that they very quickly try to get to product and show product and hope that there's some magic bullet that the customer is going to see that's going to is going to flip them over. And I, I think, honestly, some of it comes out of the... When you ask most reps in an interview, what's their 30, 60, 90 day plan? Almost all of them have some form of, I'm going to find the best rep in the company and I'm going to shadow what they do. And inevitably that rep has been there for like five or six years, knows the product inside and out. And they use that product knowledge effectively, right? They use it to drive good discovery because they know the capabilities, the pain points that solves. And they're actually having a conversation around pain and business challenges. The, the, 
new rep that's coming on board doesn't see that, doesn't get that nuance, sees the product, tries to learn the product, and then tries to replicate the thing they're doing by showing product. And it ends up being more of a product training, right? Or they'll do some cursory discovery around technical challenges. They'll skip over the business challenges and they'll just show the product, hope that something clicks and send a quote and, and then it's into witness protection, right? For the, for the prospect most of the time. I think where it becomes really, really powerful is if you can take the product knowledge and extract that back to how that product feature and capability, um, what that means in terms of value to the business. That makes a lot of sense. Do you see things changing over the course of you know the next couple of years, product-led growth? Do you see that changing the role of salespeople or does it just make it even more important? Like, How do you think about low-cost acquisition models as it relates to building out a large B2B sales team? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Product-led growth is obviously, I mean, it's been around for a while, but it's really gotten a lot more attention, I'd say, in the last couple of years. If you can do it, I think it's, it's a great source of, of leads. I do think it's really important to have the discipline within those sales teams that, that try to convert those maybe inbound leads or sort of self signups into larger customers that they are discovery focused. And I think that gets missed. A lot of times people assume an SMB sale is a transactional sale and not a complex sale. And having led both inside and enterprise teams, right, I can tell you that for for some products, that SMB sale is, is just as complex as, as it is at the, at the enterprise level. So I, I think it's a good strategy if you've got a strong enough product to do it to build top of the funnel. I don't think it's a fit for every company. And I think it's important that, especially in a startup, founders really have a hard look at that and say, do we really have a model that is supported by product-led growth or are we more of a traditional enterprise sell? Because if you make that decision wrong, I think it could be disastrous. I think you're right. Mike, we're almost at the end of our time together. What we like to do towards the end is sort of pay it forward a little bit and talk about some of the people, books, content, trainers, founders, investors that have made a big impact on you that you think we should know about. You already mentioned our mutual friend, Josh Allen, but who else comes to mind when you think about people that we should know about, maybe people that we should have as guests on the Sales Hacker Podcast? Yeah. So I think a good guest would be a guy by the name of Mike Myers from Sandler Institute. He, he had a, a franchise that focuses almost exclusively on SaaS companies, right? And did really well. It was actually interesting. His his original partner was Mike Myers and Bill Murray. Neither of them, neither <laughs> of them were the actor. But I was really, really fortunate early in my career to have him come in and do some training for us. I've used him a bunch of times. He actually, his franchise got, ended up getting acquired by Sandler because they were doing such a good job winning all the SaaS business. But he's a he's he's awesome. So I, I definitely recommend him if you haven't if you haven't already spoken to him. That sounds awesome. I'll ask for an intro it, after. Thanks so much. Mike, if folks are interested in getting in touch with you, what's uh, what's the best way? LinkedIn. I'm on I'm LinkedIn. It's the only social media tool I use, embarrassingly enough, but that's probably <laughs> the best the best way. I feel you. I'm the same way. Mike, thanks so much for being our guest on the show this week. We're going to talk to you on Friday for Friday Fundamentals. I appreciate it, Sam. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. Sam Jacobs, Sam's Corner. Really like that conversation with Mike Sadler. Classic northeastern Boston sales leader uh, in the vein of exactly the guy that he mentioned, Josh Allen, which is don't be fooled, not that you would be fooled, but clearly just a ton of intelligence, a ton of insight around how to build an effective team. He wouldn't have had the outcomes that he's had if he wasn't great at his job, but still sort of approachable and not somebody that's sort of pie in the sky sitting in an ivory tower, but somebody that's really capable of both leading from the front and, you know, closing big deals, but also empowering and training the trainer, so to speak. You know, and he mentioned that 
The single biggest job in a, any large sales organization is the frontline sales manager, is the person that is training the actual reps on a daily basis. And so the, the trick is, and the challenge as you grow and as you become a larger organization, is how do you influence the trainers? How do you influence the managers to become a great manager of managers? And some part of it is process, and some part of it is inspiration and vision, and some part of it is making sure you've got you know the right people on the bus, that you've hired the right people. And I love the insights that he had around interviewing, where he mentioned that he asks a three-part compound question, and he's evaluating not just the answers to the question, but he's evaluating the process by which a seller is listening, active listening, breaking down the question, taking some notes, and then tackling it one by one, right? And the thing that you don't want to do if you're ever interviewing with Mike, you don't want to just start talking and rambling. That's not what we're looking for. As Mike mentioned, all of this is really effectively around this concept of great discovery, right? How do you ask great questions? How do you listen intently? How do you develop and demonstrate empathy? And, and how do you really put yourself in the shoes of the seller, particularly in a recession, particularly when everybody else is on their back heels? How do you lean forward, be on your front heels? How do you say, what's your response when they say, hey, now's not the right time, call me in six months? How do you have the information to, re to rebut that? The way that you have the information to rebut that is by quantifying the problem they have in their current state and then articulate, hey, why is this okay now? What's going to change? Are you comfortable with living with sales reps that aren't being trained properly for the next six months because you said that that was costing you your ability to ramp them, your ability to hit quota and target, your ability to develop them professionally so that you, don't, you have lower attrition? So if you don't want to buy Pavilion for Teams now, what are you waiting for? Obviously, I'm talking my own book, as I usually do. I usually do that. I am the host of the Sales Hacker Podcast, but I'm also the CEO of a wonderful company called Pavilion. But you can apply the idea that I just gave you to your company, too. It doesn't really. It's not specific to our corporate membership, Pavilion for Teams, which trains entire go-to-market teams. So anyway, Mike Sadler did a great job. You're listening to this in August. I hope you're enjoying yourself. I hope you're listening to this on a little bit of vacation because the fall is going to be intense. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. There's a parting word from our sponsors, and then you'll hear from us on Friday for Friday Fundamentals. This episode of the Sales Hacker Podcast had three amazing sponsors. The first is Outreach. Outreach, the first and only engagement and intelligence platform built by revenue innovators for revenue innovators. Go to click.outreach.io forward slash 30 MPC. We're also brought to you by Pavilion, the key to getting more out of your career. Enroll in sales school, sales development school, marketing school, and our upcoming recession education pack, including selling through an economic downturn, marketing through an economic downturn, and leadership through an economic downturn. Learn more at joinpavilion.com. And of course, Vericent, high-performing revenue organizations have a game plan for growth. Learn how Vericent can help you create a predictable growth engine at vericent.com forward slash sales hacker.